0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Bill Curtis is a living legend in broadcasting here in Chicago, where he dominated television news as an anchorman for uh, decades, as a one-time co-anchor of the CBS Morning News, and as an investigative journalist and documentarian, including breaking the story of Agent Orange and the horrific impact that it had on so many of our Vietnam veterans. He continues to produce documentaries, and some of you may know him as the genial announcer on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on NPR. I sat down with Bill in Chicago recently to talk about his incredible career. Bill Curtis, it's really good to see you. I uh, When I started uh, here at the University of Chicago back in 1972-73, uh, I think you were just about that was when your big run began as an anchor at uh, WBBM here with uh, Walter Jacobson. Yeah, yeah. So we 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 will get to that, but I want to get to start at the beginning uh, of the story and your family and uh, and the fact that you actually weren't named Curtis when the whole story began. Tell me about your folks, and your dad, who was quite a military man.
2: Well, he was. You know, I, I laugh a little bit because everybody's talking about immigration, and uh, we're a nation of immigrants, and it never dawned on me that, oh, my God, I'm I'm like one generation away from immigrants from Croatia. And I was so green coming from the Midwest in Kansas, where everybody just is in the melting pot, truly. That um, I had to call him. When I got to Chicago, I called my dad and I said, "Well, what am I? Everybody here, you know, has a nationality.
1: Uh, and um, I just sat down with Lisa Madigan the other day who talked about moving uh, or the former attorney general, who when her mother married Mike Madigan, who's the Speaker of the Illinois House, they moved from the north side of Chicago. She lived on the north side of Chicago to the southwest side and she said some some girl stopped her and said well where are you from what are you and she and she said she said well i'm catholic no 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 that's not what we're talking about what are you and yeah. she finally said well i'm f- part french part spanish and they looked at her like she had two heads but uh, anyway yeah so chicago's a town where you have to know your identity
2: you do. It, it's divided. It, not so much now. I mean, now it's Hispanic, uh, black, um, white, yes. if you will. But in the old days when the port of entry uh, was on North Avenue and the Poles, uh, you can still see the Polish newspaper signs up on the buildings. And then they would move. I remember Saul Bellow. Who worked here? Yes, um, you know, used to um, bemoan the fact uh, of the Russian baths that uh, he was fond of were finally uh, had passed on uh, off uh, Armitage. I think.
1: How uh, did the uh, How did the Kuratiches get from Croatia to Kansas?
2: I'm not sure that I know for sure, but uh, most of that eastern wave, uh, especially of young men, came uh, around uh, World War I. Uh, and, the, and, and before that, the Tsar was conscripting uh, you know, folks for his army. Uh, it was, I think, around 1912, a little mm-hmm. before the war broke out. And uh, so those who uh, wanted a future <laughs> uh, jumped on the boat and came over, and uh, they, they, interesting, they found a part of America that looked like home. The Germans went to Wisconsin, mm-hmm. you know, for the beer, <laughs> and uh, the Croatians and uh, others, and Germans, and Poles, uh, some, but went west to find the wheat land, mm-hmm. like the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And my grandmother was Ukrainian, uh, married the Croatian, and uh, flat as a pancake. Uh, I went over there, and uh, I, I went to Chernobyl. I was the first guy back in from the U.S. Uh, TV uh, crowd.
1: After the nuclear Yeah, accident, and
2: yeah. I, I looked around and I said, well, this <laughs> looks just like Kansas, yeah. you know, flat as uh, a tabletop, and, um, and uh, very productive.
1: So your dad... Uh, was a uh, ultimately a general in the in the marines. Yes. Uh tell me about him and and his because you moved around a lot as military families do.
2: Mm-hmm. It was a great ladder out of a very small town in Kansas. He did go to college and then decided because it was in the middle of the depression around 36 um to join uh, he wanted to fly. And uh, had a great talent for flying and uh, became an instructor. So when World War II broke out, he was in Pensacola and Quantico and uh, instructing uh, young men how to fly. Um, about 1944, he uh, finally shipped off to uh, Okinawa and was uh, um, heading up a unit uh, attached to the 27th Corps Corps. For close air support, they were developing actually the use of fighter planes flying over the front, our front lines against the troops, which was another tool. You had artillery, mm-hmm. uh, and now you had aerial bombardment. He sent 15 uh, squadron uh, or units in a squadron. Uh, and they ran into weather, and they couldn't drop the bombs. So instead of dropping them into the sea, he called uh, the guys at uh, 27th Corps, and he said, well, do you have secondary targets? You know, I have 500-pound bombs on 15 fighter planes. Uh, could you use them? And they said, uh, as a matter of fact, yes, it's a little risky, but we're going to uh, take the chance. Uh, maybe you will. And uh, the Japanese had mortars on sort of on the other side of a mountain that we couldn't hit. With our um, artillery, and they had pinned down our forces for about four days. We can't. They said, "Just we just can't break it." Now, if you can uh, send your planes uh, against our lines, that's what's tricky about it. You usually don't do that because you're taking a big chance. Right. Uh, We'll take the chance. So one by one. Uh, the the fighter planes came in, and as the last one came around, released uh, the 500 pound bomb. It skipped, and landed right in the headquarters tent of uh, the American unit there. Huh. And uh, it was the only one among the fifteen that was a dud. Hmm. And with that, you talk about you know the uh, the great events. Uh, that will determine success or failure he would have been <laughs> gone uh if that had gone off but instead uh, he was seen as uh, something of a hero attached to a general in charge and then stayed in in the marines mhm so,
1: and and that's actually how your name got changed right
2: well i was 10 and whether it was you know hard to spell K U R E T I C H, or too much associated with uh, an Eastern uh, Nazi. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they were Nazi uh, super. Or, um, uh, they had joined, I think. Uh, They're in the Slavic uh, country, Yugoslavia. Um, so I don't know. But the. Uh, I know my mother wanted to change it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I read somewhere that the Marines themselves suggested. Maybe he should do that.
2: I hadn't heard that, but I think probably um, for one of those reasons.
1: Now you, uh, so you, you, you wound up back in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about this uh, family homestead of yours back there that ends up having a pretty illustrious history. Called Little House on the Prairie. It is the um,
2: historical site of when Laura... Uh, the the Charlie Ingalls family came from Desmet, South Dakota, down uh, the border of uh, Missouri, and then across uh, to the south. It was Indian Territory at the time, 1872, and uh, he built himself a log cabin on what was Osage Indian Reservation. And the the true story is that he got in there. Uh, before he should have, and ultimately was kicked off the reservation because he knew that the railroads were pushing, let's open up and move these Indians uh, Mm -hmm. south. Um, And it uh, now has uh, good uh, research, and uh, it was nailed down by the state historians. We have built uh, a replica cabin, moved my grandmother's one-room schoolhouse on it. And um, Laura it was most popular of about eight books uh in the series and uh so so it's the it's the it has become the iconic story of the frontier Mm -hmm. and living on the frontier there's a new book out called prairie fires and uh, it's sort of the, the other the other chapter which is uh telling the truth laura's book is fiction and it was a collection of her anecdotes um but Prairie Fires is uh, really nailed down, and together you get a, a feel. It's not the romantic um, crawling through the tunnels of the tall grasses, uh, trying to find rabbits, and uh, there are the, the kindly Indians uh, you know mm-hmm. uh, that are dancing down by the the, the stream. Um, it was the most difficult thing I've ever heard, and most of them, the frontier people who were promised free land and got it when they went out their 160 acres, uh, uh, or paid a dollar and a quarter. The railroads needed farmers to grow produce that they could then make money on by shipping them back to the east. But uh, there are incidents, you know, the grasshoppers really did come in and can wipe out a, a crop. In, uh, and you could, uh, there were no tractors in the day, so you had a mule mm-hmm. and a plow horse, and you could maybe handle a couple acres. There was one story, uh, Laura uh, Ingalls Wilder, Almanzo uh, Wilder was her husband. They were young and in Dismet. Which is sort of the old home place in South Dakota, and a blizzard hit, and it was my, uh, minus forty-two degrees, and the whole town, which Sounds was like Chicago, yeah, yeah, uh, two hundred and fifty people, and they had their little ramshackle houses, clinging to the frontier. That was the frontier, and all trying to grow, uh, and make it, and um, they were they were dying, uh, they were being frozen out. And starving. So, so they headed to
1: Kansas. Huh?
2: <laughs> almost. Almanzo heads south to a ranch or farm where they knew he had some stored wheat and talked him into giving him some wheat, took it back in the blizzard and saved the town. And they would mix the wheat with water and then fry these little uh, things on, on whatever they could. But they didn't even have firewood. It was so difficult. And then they ultimately said, got to get out of here, and uh, took the wagon down to Kansas. They only stayed a year. Uh, but boy, did she ultimately benefit from that. I'll say. And didn't write the book until the 30s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that so you was,
1: maintain this as a, a kind of museum.
2: Yes. It's now called the Little House in the Prairie Museum. Mm-hmm. And when we say, we emphasize little, Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wouldn't drive out of my
1: way to go down. <laughs> um you're uh and you had a kind of idyllic sort of life there. Um when did you I mean in a sense you, you suffer for the fact that you have this extraordinary voice that everybody knows. Uh and it kind of eclipses the fact that you've also had one of the brilliant broadcast journalism careers uh, of anyone. Uh, but uh, when did you realize that you had this gift that uh, would would serve you well? Well, when I turned sixteen, I know exactly
2: the time. And uh, at that period in your life, your voice is changing. Yeah, and um, it wasn't deep as it is today. Yeah, some and, some
1: uh, people's cha- some people's voices change less dramatically than <laughs> yours, I suspect.
2: But I went down when I was on my 16th birthday, got a work permit. And I went to work at the radio station, the only one in town, uh, Independence, Kansas, uh, population 10,000. And I was able to work uh, two, three years in the most formative period of probably any job. Uh, it just soaked up everything. Had a very good boss who became a mentor. And I was doing everything from announcing preachers who came across the Oklahoma border and uh, just stood uh, and let the word pass through them, you know, stood in front of a microphone, to Little League uh, Baseball and and Basketball. And I wanted to do it all, touch on it all. So by the time I got to uh, college, University of Kansas, and then on to law school, I had uh, enough experience that I could go to the commercial station instead of the student station.
1: And um, you, uh, one one of the you went to the uh, Washburn uh, University School of Law, and uh, I read that you were in a competition at Washington University. Uh, that was a, uh, I guess, a, a speech and debate kind of thing. Yeah, it's moot court, yeah. and uh, law students go through that. I, but just, the judge was the thing that I wanted to ask. The you. judge was I, Harry Blackman. Who ended up writing the Roe versus Wade yeah. decision as a Supreme Court as a Supreme Court justice, and became a giant on the Supreme Court. He gave you a little encouragement. Huh? He did. He said,
2: um, "He said you you have the ability to make these things interesting, and it's it's the voice, yes, but it's also telling a story." So here he was. You would think these guys are knee deep. You know, in the opinions that mm-hmm. they are ready to write, but even they sitting on a bench probably so bored <laughs> all day um, will
1: respond to respond. a good story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Storytelling is the key to everything. everything. I mean, this is why I do this yeah. this podcast because people have such interesting stories. But I think in politics or in in uh, journalism. Uh, the ability to tell a story well is really so essential to success.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, the greatest uh, beginning to a story is uh, once upon a time. Yeah. And from there, as Don Hewitt of 60 Minutes used to say, just tell me a story. Right. And suddenly you're captivated and drawn in. You forget about the world around you, and you're able to, and you know, some of the leading defense attorneys Will say that in their closing arguments they try to be, like a, <laughs> a six o'clock anchor, <laughs> yeah. in which you condense, and tell it either chronologically or really interesting, so that the jury remembers. I don't remember six weeks of evidence, but here's our
1: story. Remember yeah. this. Why did you go to law school, knowing that you wanted to be a journalist? Well, <clears throat> at that time, which was uh, the early
2: 60s mm-hmm. when I started, um, CBS News, the networks, were still using uh, radio uh, personality. The, N- the Murrow boys had just come back from World War II, and they were establishing, uh, you know, Fred Friendly claims that he established some of the techniques that we are still using, a reverse shot mm-hmm. in an interview like this. Mm-hmm. Um so it wasn't as clear then as, um, you know, practicing law. Also, practicing law in Kansas um, did, didn't have the Wizard of Oz and Emerald City kind of a, a ring to it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, my God, I won't be able to travel at all. So if I go back to my Marine Corps days, born in the Marines there, travel around uh, where my dad was moving, um, I, I, but I will say that it was very difficult. It was a difficult decision because, you know, I'd gone to law school when I graduated in 1966. It's difficult to
1: go do journalism instead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And
2: uh, there, there were the New York Times was uh, the emerald city of the day. Yes. And the Chicago Tribune, we were far, far from any metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. So it just didn't seem to have
1: the, uh, the interesting stories. But you did have one interesting story, which were was a a, a, a brutal uh, tornado uh, attack, and you were on the air at that time, which was everybody's like you know you hear about Dan Rather being around uh, there for the uh, Kennedy assassination, yes. and that was a career-making thing. In a, in a smaller way, your account of these tornadoes, which I guess you were on the air forever. Uh, when they struck was uh, something that got a lot of attention.
2: Well, it, and it still uh, has the attention today. It was also uh, very helpful for me in making the ultimate decision. I had accepted a job at a law firm in Wichita, finished a course, and a friend uh, asked me to fill in for him doing the 6 o'clock news on the local TV station. And so I went out, and uh, uh, we had some weather. I had been a weatherman for two years working. That's my part-time job, mm-hmm. getting through law school. And um, they said, why don't you stick around? We may have to go back on and give the either the all-clear or add to it. So at 7 o'clock, um, a time that will live in infamy in uh, Topeka, Kansas, um, the general manager said, well, let's go break in, and uh, you can give the... Uh, Not exactly a formal warning because we hadn't uh, received it yet. And uh, so I was on the air for about 15 seconds and heard a two-way radio come from the newsroom uh, into the studio. And it was our cameraman, and he was on the southwest edge of the city. And he said, we have a tornado on the ground, and it's uh, headed for the city, and it's big. And um, I didn't want to go with that. I wanted a confirmation Of that, because as a good journalist would, yeah,
1: it's a tornado. And uh, these are not sound effects, by the way. This is podcast life, these are fire sirens from in the city of Chicago in the background. I don't want you people thinking I'm embellishing this story, uh, but I might say they're very appropriate to the telling of this story. (laughs) But um,
2: the next uh, little report we got is that the Huntington apartments had been wiped out. Well, in my head, I'm still on camera, I could draw a straight line from the original sighting through the apartments, and uh, like an arrow, it pointed to the Capitol building, uh, Washburn, uh, the the school. I was buried and had a six-month-old child uh, living on campus. So um, I said, for God's sake, take cover. Yeah, and uh, those words uh, now Were are famous, famous, famous words.
1: But I'll tell you what: given your voice, that that must have sounded like a command from the Almighty at well, that time. They got the job. Pretty done. persuasive,
2: yeah, it, and uh, maybe it was the my my sheet white uh, countenance, <laughs> uh, and and you know you you stop, you just kind of change into this very serious. Uh, message that you are well anyway. We were on for twenty four hours. Um, uh, it, it was a, it was the most damaging at the time in the United States. Uh, it was an F five before we even had ratings yeah. of F five. And um, sadly,
1: we have more extreme weather today. And yeah, so.
2: All these records are shattered. They are. And, and people more people are living uh, in the path. Yeah. Hurricanes, uh, everybody wants a place there on the, on the shore. Uh, well, within three months, I was in Chicago. Yeah. Which is... For
1: uh, your first tour of duty in yes,
2: Chicago. yeah. And it was a, a marvelous uh, experience because it was a four-year, 66 to um, 70. Pretty tumultuous time. Tumultuous. Here. You know, when I arrived, Richard Speck... Had just been caught,
1: mass. mass, uh, mass well, murder. he, he murdered what seven nurses? Uh,
2: eight, eight uh, nurses. Uh, seven, oh. uh, well, seven or eight. Um, Corazon Emerald was the the big witness in the Right, trial. one
1: nurse. He broke into a home where nurses were dorming, essentially, yeah. and 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 murdered uh, them. And there was one nurse who was hiding, and identified a, a, a tattoo on his arm. But for there was a period of time when He was on the loose, and the city was absolutely terrorized uh, to death. My wife was a young uh, Susan was a a young girl at the time, and she said she was absolutely terrorized Hmm. during this period. Uh, So you were covering that story, covering the story, covering the trial. Then
2: in Peoria, they they changed venue.
1: They had, by the way, that tattoo said "Born to Raise Hell," right? Wasn't that the tattoo
2: discovered uh, when he? Tried to kill himself, and he was taken to county hospital and was identified there yeah. by a doctor. Uh, so it was an auspicious beginning, as they say. You
1: years later, you would report you had you had another report about Richard Speck that made quite a uh, impact, which was how he was living in prison yeah. and essentially was. Sex, drugs, and I don't know about rock and roll, but he was partying down well, in, it, in prison and it, it, it outraged people.
2: Well, it, it, here's the most hated man, certainly in Illinois and perhaps uh, the country. Yeah, um, It was uh, a videotape that had been made. Um, they never figured out why. Um, the closest thing, I think, is that there is a jailhouse network of, um, of videos that they will do. Uh, they have that kind of freedom. Anyway, it showed him stripping down uh, naked uh, with his lover uh, beside him. A pile of cocaine was in front, $100 bills thrown out uh, in front. And um, he appeared to have had to have uh, breast either implants or some kind of a chemical Mm -hmm. Enhancement. uh, enhancement. And I'm not sure whether it was that or just overweight. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, nonetheless, uh, he had some great quotes. Um, why did you kill those girls? And he said, just wasn't their day. Yeah. Um, well, what do you want people to know you know, who see you in here? He said, you know, if they knew how good I have it in here, they'd want me out. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just like rubbing the salt in the wound. How did the you wound. get this tape? It was given to me um, as, you know, investigative reporters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, don't go in and bludgeon people to give me the story, but they make contacts, mm-hmm. and so um, a lawyer had been given it as um, a fee paid for fee. She knew. Whoops! Uh, I've just told more than uh, I should have. Okay, you've
1: yes, you've narrowed uh, the uh,
2: yeah the the list
1: of suspects, <laughs> but I've,
2: ke- I've kept it secret all these years. And um, uh, so we looked at it, uh, and, and I said, my God, I don't know <laughs> what yeah. I'm looking at. So we called the prosecutor, and Bill Martin came out, and sure, we confirmed everything. Sat on it for a bit as we were trying to figure out where it was shot, why, when. He he was dead at that moment. But when it went on, on the air, uh, it went on a local station, WBBM, then A&E, uh, crime series that I was mm-hmm. starting to produce, um, it was the most explosive story that i 've ever been connected with, uh, explosive in the sense that it was shocking, shocking, and every television station in the country yeah. wanted it, yeah, and they were just all over us, and we were the only ones that who had it, yeah, so when we say exclusive, it really
1: was, yeah, yeah. they could not get it you uh you you were here during the uh the period where um, uh, after Martin Luther King's assassination, when riots erupted in the city of Chicago, you were here during the Democratic National Convention. What were those times like for you as a reporter? Well, it was, I hate to say wonderful,
2: (laughs) but uh, firemen like to fight fires. Police uh, like to solve crimes. For me, I was on the street most of the time. And so I was there at Balboa in Michigan when the demonstrators pushed into the, the police line. I, yeah. I mean, I was—they were in front of me. You talk about history. And um, for a long time, I mean, I reported as I saw it, but it was not quite uh, as accurate as uh, it should be because I couldn't be in all the perspectives that other reporters had around, but there was that. And then uh, after King uh, and the the cities began to burn, mm-hmm. you know, we had a west side uh, here a few blocks from the University of Chicago, um, uh, a lot of... You know, and here's the interesting thing. I mean, I was on the street, and we were literally in a car, a crew car, uh, as, as the rioters were run, or going down the street... And lighting with torches, houses and shops, and, um, and that's being right in it. They weren't interested in us. They were interested in burning the city. The interesting thing is that here was the largest riot that Chicago had. Ex- not the not the fire, that of course was uh, eighteen. Uh, 71, 72. Right, yes, that was um, but the, epic. But the riot that, that, it, that the city had ever experienced, and uh, only 11 people were killed, mm-hmm. which I say only, uh, that's still tragic, but it was a time when there weren't that many guns yeah. available. Yeah. And um, I would then go out to L.A. for the, the Rodney King riots, and they were much Uh, wider spread in South Central. You
1: did actually in the early early 70s a a stint in in LA uh, and you covered among other things the Manson trial uh, out there and uh, you had another encounter with Squeaky Fromm who would become a Manson who was a, a Manson acolyte who became famous a few years later when she tried to assassinate President Ford. But she didn't like you very much either, apparently.
2: You know, the family, um, Vincent Bugliosi, the prosecutor, uh, was worried that he was not going to be able to convict Charlie because Charlie was never at the scene of a crime, of any of the murders, uh, because he had created these so-called zombies with
1: drugs and sex and sent Sent them off. Yeah. So um, we should point out this is the famous murder of Sharon Tate, yes. uh, the actress, uh, and uh, it was just a brutal, shocking murder by followers of Charles Manson, who yeah. was kind of a satanic uh, mm-hmm. figure.
2: Here are young people who are doing Charlie's bidding. Charlie, being the ex-con, spent all his whole life, uh, you know, in prison, and yet when it came down to it, Susan Atkins and uh, Leslie Van Houten and Patricia Krenwinkel and Tex Watson, a big all-American high school football player, were able to dip towels in blood and write on the walls, pigs trying to make it look like Black Panthers had created mm-hmm. it to touch off a civil war in which the blacks would be eliminated. But yes, uh, Squeaky Fromm, uh, they would camp right out on the... Uh, uh, sidewalk, and they were sewing a magic vest for mm-hmm. Charlie. And, uh, you know, I walked up, and there was a forty-five uh, on the table, and I said, I mean, on their seat, I said, I don't know how you're getting away with that. But at night, um, with my uh, child, and I think a second by that, that time, we were out on Sunset Boulevard all the way to the end, almost the ocean. And I had a knock on the door and a young woman was at the door and mascara streaming from her eyes uh, it was raining and she looked pretty rough she said please call the police call the police I need to get home so I uh, went I called the police and uh, almost as soon as I had turned away from her Came back to the door, and there was a large young man standing beside her. So I've got a picture of large young man, Manson-like follower in front. And I said, "Well, here we go." Um, and it, it was her. No, it wasn't. It looked like very much like her, and uh, she—they—they uh, they kind of disappeared before the police got there.
1: Uh, And did you think they were menacing you because they didn't like your coverage? Yeah.
2: I think they were on on marijuana, but Mm -hmm. Charlie had this ability, or at least a magician-like quality, an an illusionist, to make you think that he could communicate with all these people, his family, from jail, even though there was no communication. Mm -hmm. He, He didn't even have access to a phone. And so it's perfectly, and we had heard threats that he had sent them out to try and get better coverage. Mm. Um, So it, you know, is it kind of in the air? That was a 10-month trial. Yeah. Uh, Now I'm glad I did it as I look back because of the uh, history
1: making. Yeah, you had a lot uh, of—you covered the trial of Angela Davis, Daniel Ellsberg. Did you get some of these assignments because you had a legal background? Yes, Mm -hmm. CBS
2: News, uh, news. and um, I was out of the West Coast, and they
1: simply were
2: happening out there.
1: But then you, in 73, as you mentioned earlier, you got called back to Chicago and— to be an anchorman. And you got paired with this fellow who's famous here in Chicago, Walter Jacobson, who was a newspaper man turned uh, broadcast journalist, as volatile as you are calm, uh, <laughs> a, a political uh, junkie by, by, uh, by nature. And, of course, that's the civic sport here and was even more so yeah. – back in the early 70s. And you guys had like an immortal pairing here in local news, just dominated yeah. local news. But I was saying to you before we started rolling that um, one of the things that was always fun to watch was when Walter would go off and you would gently try and reel him back in, <laughs> even as all of Chicago was watching. But this is the one that story that I wanted to tell you. The night that uh, there was a hitman named Harry Alleman, who you'll remember, oh, yes. and Harry Alleman walked up to a guy on the street and killed him, and there were witnesses. Those witnesses testified, but he asked for a bench trial, and the judge acquitted him. judge ultimately committed suicide, I think, uh, and it was... Took a bribe. Ultimately, he took a bribe, committed suicide. Ultimately, uh, there was a a, 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 a trial about how that was actually fixed. But at the moment... You know, um, Walter, I think John Drummond, who was your great crime reporter, was on the (laughs) street, and uh, John Bulldog Drummond, and John Drummond was reporting this, and Walter said something like, well, what you're not saying, John, but what everybody's thinking is this case was fixed. (laughs) And uh, and I just remember you saying something like, "Well, Walter, you know, we say things in the heat of the moment that maybe we're not, you know, f- fully." And and you just you were frantically but calmly trying to reel the whole situation uh, back in. But um, you 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 had this great run, and then you got summoned by the network to New York to, and you did three, uh, three years, years yeah. as a uh, morning news morning news with Diane Sawyer. Yep. Um and that my sense was that wasn't that satisfying experience for you. Well, for one thing, um you know you, you go you become a network
2: anchor and everybody wants to do it. It's the top of the mountain. But when you get there you realize, oh my god, I'm not writing. I'm not reporting uh because I have 2 hours live on the air of anchoring and that's what I'm paid to do and my my joy really was in uh, on the streets and uh, and and actually doing the work of journalism.
1: And by I should say parenthetically, because I, I want to make sure that people understand this, you did a lot of investigative journalism. Um, you were the person who broke the story about Agent Orange yes. and its impact on Vietnam veterans, which was a huge and and really uh, distressing. Uh, story. Um, and, uh, you, you know, you were, uh, you went to Tehran and uh, reported from there uh, in the midst of all of the turmoil there around the revolution, time of the revolution, mm-hmm. and reported on the sort of deprivation of people that yes. led to uh, that. I mean, you, so, so reporting, I mean, like I said earlier that you don't get your due because. Everybody is so transfixed by your voice that uh, all the good and and uh, you know breaking work that you did, path-breaking work, really uh, gets ignored. But that must have been frustrating for you to sit behind that anchor desk and not be free to do that kind of reporting.
2: Well, I was able to um, use my correspondent background and the argument that, look, this is going to increase the ratings. We were in a... Very competitive spot. Um, so if you allow me to go to Africa, go to Belfast. So you did this in that period of time? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I see. And um, and have a, a, an investigative unit, mm-hmm. um, hence uh, the Agent Orange story. Mm-hmm. And um, yes, um, and we had some great general managers, and, and there was a breakthrough. Uh, and I wish that it had continued, although you will see Local station sending reporters abroad if there is a connection. I well, was well, the a, budgets are I, not what they were. Right. I was in Saigon uh, two weeks before it fell. Mm-hmm. Um, went to North Vietnam on the Agent Orange story. Um, incidentally, two hundred thousand veterans have been compensated for connection uh, diseases connected to fifty yeah. diseases have been recognized. Yeah. As uh, so that was. That's
1: I think how you measure. Yeah the worth of the work you do as a journalist if it can have that kind of an impact on people's lives.
2: And that's the key uh, to being a reporter. If we look at what's happening in Washington today, it's uh, in many ways uh, the glory days have returned, uh, certainly with the New York Times and the, and the Post,
1: mm-hmm. um, because uh, investigating reporting they're shining a bright light in dark yeah. corners Indeed. which is uh, but what tell me uh, while we're here uh, because you you did you, you you sort of made the transformation into documentary work and you did have a return stint you and Walter but um, you became really focused on documentary yes. work and and providing um, I mean you, you still to this day, uh, you and your brilliant wife, uh, Donna LaPietra are have produced enormous amount of material for various uh, cable outlets and so on. But before we get there, I want to ask you about local news and where you think local news is today. Because you're quite right that in Washington, coverage is as robust as it's ever been. And there are all these additional outlets on digital that are covering it. But the local news scene is really kind of frightening to me uh the sort of diminution of resources for uh local newspapers local news television news stations i mean where is this all going uh, to digital um and
2: it's not quite there yet advertising has left right and if you don't have the money to support uh, your efforts then uh everything has to shrink i mean there are 400 reporters and news people at the Tribune that have lost their jobs. So in many ways, the, the newspapers are shadows of what they used yeah. to be. Yeah,
1: I grew up there, and it, it grieves yeah.
2: me. Oh, me too. I feel so sad. And local um, news, you know, I think that the reporters are better educated than they ever have been. The What happened is that the, the schools have caught up with the convergence idea, radio, television, mm-hmm. writing um, and and other jobs that you can take because there's so many p- kids mm-hmm. who want to get into journalism or broadcasting, so but they kind of come up to local news and it's full right and and we're not doing the the kind of um, they're doing good jobs with but but it's largely stand-ups in the morning and evening, you know, which...
1: They're not doing the kind of investigative work that no. you, the, the uh, deep Walter, stuff. and others used to uh, do in the day. I, I, I really worry about that. You started Curtis Productions in 1990, uh, and, uh, I mean, the list of things that you, you know, uh, investigative reports, cold case files, American justice. Uh, tell me what your thinking was then and... Um, and continues to be about uh, about the work you're doing now. Yeah. In 85, I came back from New York. I, I just
2: wanted to do journalism. And uh, in my contract, I wrote in that I was able to start my own company. So while working at uh, the local TV station, I was also forming Curtis Productions. And it was lucky because I was at the beginning of what could be called a golden age of documentaries mm-hmm. on cable. Mm-hmm. They were still running World War II documentaries, you know, um, Hitler uh, going down the street. And <laughs> they discovered a new formula, and that was local is cheaper. I mean, uh, uh, their locally original original produced uh, documentaries. It was cheaper, and it was able to give them an identity, mm-hmm. an a and a discovery uh, right down the line. And so uh, it started, and uh, Investigative Reports, I mean, we were into 10 years of that, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, And Cold Case Files, seven years, 127 shows. I mean, think about it. We now produce American Greed on CNBC. So uh, in all, probably 500 documentaries out of a uh, little local production company. And
1: how much uh, time do you spend on these things?
2: Um, I know you voice
1: over a lot of. Them. I do.
2: Um, my wife Donna uh, runs the company, so we keep it in the family. Uh, I just came from uh, a, a narration session, uh, so and I have my spe- I have my um, uh, cool, uh, climate change is a hot button for mm-hmm. me. Um, appropriate for someone
1: who covered the weather
2: uh, yes and into um, as one of the solutions is deep rooted prairie plants
1: yeah you you have another enterprise yeah
2: that soaks up not only are we experimenting with it uh, at uh, one of our locations but it soaks up more carbon than almost any other thing besides ocean and because the roots go down 15 feet and They are filled with billions of organisms that all eat carbon. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it'll get here. And I believe, in my mind, that we all kind of know about climate and the problems. But a a, a panel issues a report which says, you know, we're going to be in major trouble in 10 years. 10 years. Yeah, we're talking about, and you you, you look at the amount of uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We've
1: already gone over the uh, the warning. Yeah, sides. no, look, I I think this is a um, existential crisis. Yeah, but
2: but why doesn't anybody
1: react? I mean, even even Congress. Uh, you know why? Because uh, there are you know some economic ramifications for it, and because we, we're never very good at dealing with problems that are. Ten years down the line. Now, if you are watching the news, or if you live in California, where they're constantly dealing with wildfires now, or you look at the magnitude of the storms that people are dealing with up and down the the Eastern Seaboard or in the Gulf, uh, you know how much warning do you need? Uh, I mean, all of these da- uh, all of these forecasts that we've been hearing for years are now coming to fruition, and we've suffered the First, the 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 warmest five years on record in the last five years by the government's own yeah. reckoning. The, one person who's not a, a big consumer of this data is the president of the United States. However,
2: and I've slowed it down. Mm-hmm. And the strategy of the big economic giants, uh, oil companies and others, who uh, don't necessarily want to cut back on their emissions, um, is to find that. A scientist that happens to be a denier yes. and fund him and support that It's the same strategy that was used for cigarettes
1: yeah and it just delays. I think the thing that makes it more uh, insidious and difficult is that there are outlets that have big followings that uh, are willing to popularize those kinds of out outlandish and outlying, scientific theories i have to ask you um you um in addition to all the other work you've done you're quite a photographer and you you've had books of photography and and talk to me about um imagery and what photographs both film and still photographs like the ones that you've taken uh do to animate a story Well, you have to have uh, television, as that's what it's all about. Uh,
2: Motion pictures, uh, still photography is coming back, I think. It was replaced by digital, you know, and uh, I put it off for an awful long time uh, because you have to know computers and
1: and all the little gadgets. But, uh, But what attracted you to, what caused you to take photographs?
2: I was at the scene of so many things. Um, fires on the West Side, the Democratic Convention, um, the Benson trial. So I said, you know, I'm here. I better start taking pictures. Mm-hmm. And uh, that helped because the substance of that imagery carried the day. I didn't have to be Ansel Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I, I picked it up and uh, it became more than a hobby.
1: I want to ask you um, uh, about you know you describe your life and people will say this is an extraordinary life. Um, by the way, we should add that you're also you replaced in 2014 Carl Castle on the on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me. You probably have a whole new generation of followers uh, for your work on that. You were a uh, you were. Uh, uh, in the movie uh, Anchor Man and uh you probably have a whole generation of followers uh as a result of that but your life hasn't been all as most lives aren't uh, unchallenged uh you you uh you married your high school sweetheart she died quite young uh and uh, of cancer Mm-hmm. And you had a son who, uh, who struggled with schizophrenia until he took his own life. How, you know, I, I try, I raise it because I feel so strongly that we need to talk about these things, particularly mental yes. health uh, issues, uh, and treat them as the, the illness that they are and not as some sort of character defect. So tell me about your, your son. Well, It's
2: more important now than ever because the shooters uh, responsible for all these mass murders... um, Yeah, it's a common thread. That's right. And so we have to find out how we can better identify those that are going to be violent. Mm -hmm. I took uh, my son to the Menninger Foundation, which was the last remaining long-term mental uh, health facility in Kansas. And... um, Uh, they have now moved to uh, M.D. Anderson, and they said he's not the violet type. But schizophrenia is hard to detect. It happens around 19, 20 years old.
1: And is that what happened with your son, Scott? Um,
2: I believe, uh, among several theories of why it happens, that there's a chemical in the brain, dopamine perhaps, that turns off. And they begin to... Uh, I have uh, hallucinations, uh, audio uh, problems. They described it to me, and there are different descriptions, that you you can go to a movie or go to a a, a concert, and um, you go home and you go to bed, and, and all those senses turn off. But for a schizophrenic, they don't. So his head can be filled with voices, voices that are terrible, toward him, telling him, uh, you know, your father is the devil. You have to kill him and, um, and lead them, you know, to violence. Um, and, of course, there are a thousand different kinds. Anyway, Scott um, lived with that. I felt so sorry for him because one of the things that happens is that they're unable to hold a job because uh, their attention span is is not any really good. They're dealing with all this inside their head, at the same time trying to live, uh, work, be normal, which they can't. So it becomes just this crushing negativity.
1: And he he was perfectly normal uh, as a younger child up to that point, by
2: nineteen, twenty, and then it's takes time to determine whether this is uh, bipolar now or schizophrenia mm. or just being a teenager. And uh, you know, uh, the drugs, the medications. In 1968, um, many of the states, including Illinois, closed the so-called snake pits, the warehouses for the mentally ill. Right. And the theory was, well, we're going to put them on the street, and they're going to administer their own medications. Administer their own the crazy. Administer their own medications. What are we nuts?
1: We're trying to save money. So it's also true that these places became kind of warehouses, yes, and it, that people were no, yes. were uh, kind of neglected and
2: abused. Something had to be done, right? Um, but instead, we now have, I think, a terrible mental health system. Uh, there's no place to go. Yeah. So consider this: uh, you're a parent. You have a child. Uh, they're different. Uh, they sp- spend, you know, all day in front of a computer. Um, the parent has to go in and look at the computer and what they're doing there. Mm-hmm. In the Columbine uh, killings they, you know, had essays and plans almost for a year of what they wanted to do to the people in the school. And so the 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 big problem, I think, these days is to, one, come to grips with the fact that your child has a problem and may develop a violent, whether they have or not, uh, a tendency. And how are you going to commit them? Well, if you commit them, that probably means more than a psychiatrist. Uh, it could mean to a state hospital. Institutionalized And school. that is sort of the end of the world for a lot of parents. Here's a tip. Remember Gabby Giffords, who was shot in right. Phoenix? Uh, I saw an early uh, uh, story that came across that said, her, uh, the young man, Jarrett Logner, y- his Jared, name was, yeah. uh, took a bag, presumably of, of weapons, and got in the car and drove off away from the house. His father saw that. He, he said early in the game, Yes, I saw that, and I went after him. That means his father knew something, whether you know the, the violence hadn't happened yet, but he knew something was wrong, and he knew that something could happen. So people know, uh, and parents, I think, have to be given sort of a,
1: a guide. Mm-hmm. Here, here's what you do. Did you? Um, how did you uh, deal with your son's uh, illness? And were you monitoring him in that way, or? Uh, and and what yeah. was I mean? Wh- I guess he died on your a farm, or yes. And um, I,
2: I w- did not have him uh, at home, and um, he actually left for several years and uh, doing what he wanted to do, and so I, I bought him a small house in the town that is adjacent to the ranch, uh, because uh, Menninger's tried to teach them to be independent Mm -hmm. and so they can live life on their own terms. And uh, I had uh, a cousin there and appointed a guardian so they would come and administer the medications every day. Um, Scott, the problem is the medications caused him to uh, gain weight. So by the time he died, he was 300 pounds. Oh, my. uh, Grotesque. So just being that obese... Prevents you from living up to mm-hmm. any dreams. Um, so, I—I I actually, and the sheriff knew, the police knew. It's a thirteen hundred uh, population. The other people in town, well, that's uh, Scott, you know, and they'll kind of. Then they weren't afraid. Um, so I set up my own mental health mm-hmm. uh, system. Um, Obviously, it didn't do any good. Uh, We didn't have anything to cure the disease. We cannot cure it, Mm -hmm. but we can support. It's like an alcoholic. An alcoholic um, can run the life of a family, ruin it in many cases, but it takes all the money they have to send them off to treatment. and then, and Scott would go back into the hospital uh, probably every six months. He would act out and kind of come to the end of those uh, medications. And then he would uh, get his re, re, retuning and come out after about six weeks and be fine. But it was the back and forth, back and forth. And Kansas has a pretty good mental health system. They have a, you know, but it costs money. Yeah. In, in a state that doesn't have any to begin with. So everything is... Uh,
1: so when you got that call, you weren't entirely surprised, huh?
2: No. Uh, my daughter uh, called me, and um, she wasn't sure whether he killed himself or uh, just died. Mm-hmm. He had uh, diseases that... Kind of associated. Well, obesity you know. of that. Well, obesity and uh, pancreatitis mm-hmm. and diverticulitis, and mm-hmm. you know, you've got to go down the list. Um, it's a terrible life, and the ripple effect affects so many people. It's good to talk about it. I did not talk about it. I did not want to exploit it, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have since had, had people, the minute they hear, I- you know, and they will come to you and say, Oh my God, we have
1: that in our family. Everybody's a regular listener of this podcast knows that my dad committed suicide. And, you know, I talk about it and I didn't talk about it for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I talk about it because I realized, you know, I didn't want to stigmatize him. Um, but that's exactly why he didn't get the help he needed. Yeah. And the best thing that we can do for people who are struggling and their families is to encourage them to get the help that they need and the guidance that they need to deal with what is an illness. Oh. You know, medications can
2: stop the voices and the hallucinations. But, you know, then you have other problems pop out. First thing that some of these uh, kids will do is go right to the drugs. Mm. I mean, opioids. To self-medicate. Yeah, self-medicate. and and. You know, for terminal patients uh, in cancer or anything, I say, you know, they should have any drug they want Mm -hmm. uh, to improve their life at all. The problem
1: is that we have more and more people self-medicating against problems that are, you know, either mental illness or other stresses. And, I mean, we have an epidemic now. So, well, these are are sobering uh, challenges. And I think it is important that we talk about them. It's good... That you're talking about them, I I just want to d- not to go from the sacred to the I don't want to say profane, but I want to get back to politics for one second. You have a sister who was uh, in politics in in Kansas, and what what's interesting to me is that she was a Republican, and uh, but she switched parties. Uh, tell me about her and uh, her. Role in politics? She was a state senator for 13 years.
2: She had an expertise in education. Education is the hot button there. Yes. They're still behind, I think, 300, 300 million. That yeah. seems like a lot of money. Um, she just kind of came to the point where an extreme section of the Republican Party had taken over uh, the state house. Yeah. Governor Brownback. Yep and uh we're doing some things that um she didn't like. She loved the politics, so she said I'm going to change. You know who had beaten her in a race for uh Congress in her little district, Southeast
1: Kansas. So Mike Pompeo defeated your sister?
2: Yes, Mike Pompeo and who would know at the time he was very conservative uh, right in with the rest of the had uh, yeah, Koch
1: Brothers' support, probably uh, very much, yeah.
2: and uh, one could say they run the state because yeah. of all their support. And he went on, uh, you know, he was in Congress, yeah, and uh, made his um, conservative um, connections, yes, and and uh, they liked him, yeah. He may have been the
1: most successful uh, member of that uh, cabinet uh, that we have. A lot, lot of speculation that he may run for president if. Uh, in the post-Trump uh, era. So it all began with your defeating your sister, apparently. Well, then she
2: ran against uh, Kobach,
1: who was the Secretary of State. Yeah. And
2: uh, was also defeated. Um, and uh, Kobach is now famous for putting a thirty-eight caliber machine gun on the back of a pickup and, <laughs> and entering the political parades in yeah. the little towns of Kansas. I hope He's he al- went,
1: he also... Uh, for all of the stuff that he's done anti-immigration uh he was the chairman of the president's vote fraud commission that couldn't find any vote fraud yeah uh so he's made quite a name for himself, and just barely lost a race for governor uh last year uh bill curtis it's really great to see you i i i want to thank you for being such an illuminating force here in the city of chicago and uh and beyond for, uh, for all these years. And I look forward to, to, uh, to what you do next and to hearing you every week on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. David, back at you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.